Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Amanda. And I'm Jason. And welcome to the first ever episode of FFS, another Brexit podcast. Huzzah! <laughs> Is that that? Yeah? Yeah, I don't know. A bit of Richard's nodding, so yeah. Our very first podcast. This is very exciting. So let's begin by saying that this campaign is different. FFS is different. And so hopefully this podcast will be different too. Trying to give a platform to new voices, diverse perspectives, and a bit of insider analysis from the next generation of People's Vote activists. There quite simply is not another podcast like this out there. We hope. We hope. Please, please keep listening. Um, so uh, we're very excited on our first podcast to be here with our very special first guest, Ian Dale, who is a prominent and well-respected Conservative Party commentator and LBC host. He used to be managing director of Biteback Publishing, publisher of Total Politics, and we believe is the only person, alive or dead, to interview all Conservative Party leadership candidates. So Ian knows his stuff and is known to the podcast world already with his award-winning For The Many podcast. He's even got his own show. Actually, hang on a second. Have I missed something? What award have we ever won for that? Oh, I'm looking at Richard Lewis, <laughs> looking at the guy behind the glass window who wrote we, award We have winning. entered some awards, but sadly, we've never won, this is a, which is a travesty. This is a, I this is a terrible start we, to we, the podcast. We, 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 Listeners at home, we apologise. Richard is squirming The incompetence massively. of our first episode. We could expect win more. an award for longest podcast, because the last episode was 100 minutes, which I have to advise oh, wow. you, don't do that. I was about to say, that will not be happening no, today. Because no, no. <laughs> I have a show to present at 7 o'clock and it's 20 past. We could, be, yeah. we could be on the show. You, you could be at some point, depending on how this goes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair, that is fair. Um, well, we're hoping you're going to say something relatively controversial so that we get or provoke listeners. Me. Yeah. We'll, we'll, well, I mean, we'll we've just... just said you won an award when you haven't, so that seems quite <laughs> yeah. controversial. I'm not quite sure that'll get you listeners, <laughs> no. you never yeah. know. There might be some sad Listen to the FFS there. podcast where we give imaginary awards away. Um, <laughs> should, we, should we talk a little bit about what, for our future sake, or FFS is all about what yeah. I just as an aside what I love is on social media when people let us know that FFS stands for something else other than <laughs> for our future it's like, it's like oh really that's that's good to see know. I thought it was for fuck's sake yeah I mean, that's, I mean, that's what I yeah. would always think that was because I use that quite a lot on Twitter yeah yeah, yeah. Well, usually against we Remainers. Up, we end up using that a lot. It's <laughs> an accurate acronym for a lot yes. of Brexit hot takes, I would suggest. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, go for it, Jason. Um, so uh, I guess our story um, starts like all good stories. Uh, it's one that starts in a pub. So the three of us, Richard Brooks, Amanda and I, uh, we were essentially lamenting the state of British Brexit politics and, uh, yeah, thought we should probably do something about it. We were frustrated about how old it seemed, how... Uh, and I say this as a black man, how white the debate seemed. Uh, we wanted to... Should I leave now? No, no, no. You're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're allowed to stay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's why we, we kind of got involved. And 
we're here where we are now. Yeah, and we woke up the next morning with slightly fuzzy heads, I think it's fair to say, as all pub planning sessions go. A slightly poorly written group text saying that if someone was going to do it, then why not us? And it's fair to say that things have spiralled quite quickly since then. Yeah, so we launched in March 2018. We've got 100 youth-led and student-led organisations across the UK, and we've got some prominent figures in the Brexit debate, so... Yeah. Um, so we've got some questions, obviously, for you, Ian. Um, cool. And the first one is one that we'll be asking all of the guests that come onto the podcast is who or what would you pick for an FFS award over the last couple of weeks? So that's someone or something that's done something utterly ridiculous in the context of Brexit. Well, bad ridiculous or just... Just ridiculous. I'm going to name Marc Francois because it's so easy <laughs> to do Always a safe so. choice. <laughs> well, it is, a, it is a, because, you see, what gets me is people like him. And I mean, a lot of these people I know, I've known Marc Francois for, I don't know, 20 years. But they are the people that have jeopardised Brexit because we would be out of the European Union now mm-hmm. had they not acted in the way that they did. They can't count. They don't seem to understand that being 70% out is better than being 0% out. And okay, you can argue over what percentage it would have been. But they are just so ideologically pure that they can't accept anything unless it is 100%. Well, given the state of politics in our country with the parliamentary arithmetic, you have to learn to be able to count. And they clearly couldn't do that. So I will name Marc Francois, even though I feel slightly dirty about doing so. (laughs) I think it's a safe choice. I think it's a good answer, personally. It was him, wasn't it? He he did the... um slit throat sign about Theresa May a few weeks back, isn't it? Yes. You see, I, I think the media have to answer for themselves on this because the media have promoted Marc Francois to be, I suppose, one of the leading voices of the ERG. Now, he is high up in the ERG, so why not? But there are lots of other voices that, shall we say, come across as a in a little bit of a more sane way than Marc Francois does. He, he is the identikit media darling because he will say something completely outrageous. Mm. And to my mind, if I, if I was head of the ERG, now there's a thought, um, <laughs> I, I would not put him up as the main spokesman. There are plenty of other people in the ERG who can articulate Brexit in a, in a very different way. But for some reason, they never get invited or rarely get invited onto the media because... You, you can you can see the producers want headlines. They want somebody who's going to say something relatively outrageous. And mm. You just pointed to an episode where he, I mean, he wasn't doing an interview then, but I mean, he is kind of box office for that kind of program. So mm. he's on Politics Live virtually every four days, it seems, at the moment. Um, I don't have him on my show very often because because of that reason. I want to have a more diverse range of voices. I don't want the same voices each time. I don't want the same voices from either side. Yeah. I mean, I do have Andrew Donis on, I have to say, quite a lot. But um... <laughs> He always provides a, provides a bit of comedy, yes. doesn't he? Um, anyway, no, I think that's, that's a good answer. Um, so you've kind of said already that actually the national conversation maybe isn't focusing on Brexit currently because of something else relatively important going on. For Depending on when this goes out, the Tory leadership race is still happening. So who do you want to win and who do you think will win? Um, I I can't say who I want to win for two reasons. First of all, I, I genuinely don't know. Second of all, 
because I'm interviewing them, it would be wrong for me to express mm. a preference. There is a third reason, which I can't tell you now, but you'll find out later on in the week. You know who's already won. No, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, look, you only have to look at the figures that Boris Johnson is way ahead. And isn't it funny how we all now have to say Boris Johnson rather than Boris? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Boris Johnson, Mr. Johnson, is way out in front in, in the, I mean, we're recording this on the afternoon. In fact, MPs are voting at yeah, the moment. right now. In the second ballot. Now, I'm imagining that he will be even further ahead than he was in the first ballot. Uh, I think it's actually quite difficult to predict who will come second. Um, I had thought it would be Michael Gove to start with, but his campaign following the cocaine revelations Mm. hasn't really caught fire. Um, Jeremy Hunt, uh, I think, is the most likely one to come second. A lot of my colleagues think that Rory Stewart is going to get into the final two, which I... Really? They believe well, the hype, do I, they? I, I really don't see that <laughs> at okay. all. In fact, I, I think... I, I mean, I would have thought he would go out this afternoon. I may be wrong what, on that. What's your take on him, just as a, a quick aside? Well, I like him. He and I um, competed for Bracknell in 2009 when Philip Lee won. He came second, I came third. So I got to know him a little bit then. And he got his constituency about two weeks after that. So I've always followed his career quite closely. And he is a genuinely nice guy. He's really fascinating to talk to. Um, I, I think he's been incredible in many ways in this leadership contest in becoming the insurgent candidate having been to Eton and Oxford I think that's quite a, that is quite an achievement and I think one of the reasons why he probably won't get to the final two is because you can't have two former Etonian, two old Etonians and two really? people think, from you, Oxford do Bailey. Do you think it's that? Or oh, do you think it's course. more that he's saying oh, it would be a gift. stuff that it, the no, 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 no. like, what? It would be a it's gift. It's going to be hard to push through Brexit. It would Damn be, you, man. It would be a gift to Labour. Well, the thing is, Rory has been the ultimate populist in this campaign. Now, I don't say that to mm. criticise him necessarily, but he knows which buttons to push about, oh, well, people are fed up with politicians. Yes, I'm going to tell you my weaknesses, unlike these other ones. But if you look at his policy on Europe... It's bollocks. I mean, it just falls to pieces when you start to examine it. Essentially, it's Theresa May's deal. That's all it is. Now, that's not which in, that's not imitative, which yeah. most people would think, whatever your politics are, that that is now dead. Now, you can criticise the others for having sort of slightly pie-in-the-sky ideas on how they can effect a new deal or just leave with no deal. But Rory Stewart has, I think, escaped proper scrutiny in this, partly because nobody really took him seriously as a candidate to begin with. But I think that is starting to happen now where people think, well, hang on a minute, is this really new what he's suggesting? And when he says that he's very happy to work with Nigel Farage, but couldn't possibly work with Boris Johnson, you think, hang on a minute, mate, there's something wrong there. Yeah, there is. I mean, he's populist, I guess, in a broader context, but not in the context of the Tory party. I mean, his lines, his arguments are never going to win him majority support he knows that right? well you say that but this is where a lot of people totally misjudge Tory party members people imagine that they're all in their 70s uh, all hang them and flog them and all the rest of it it's very far from the case the average age yes is 57 so a year older than me now to somebody who's 20 that is ancient but actually it's only two i think the average age is only two years older than the labor party membership um And also, they're a lot more socially liberal than they're given credit for. These are the people that voted two-thirds to elect David Cameron as leader in 2005. Now, we are 14 years on from that now. Um, So don't anyone tell me that the Conservative Party membership has got more socially conservative over that time. Um, As the generations change, inevitably, 
people do move into the 21st century. So um, there was a YouGov poll in the Times a couple of Saturdays ago that showed that 39% of people of Tory party members would vote for Boris Johnson and all the others were sort of way down. But that also meant that 61% did not intend to vote for Boris Johnson. So everyone's saying this is already signed and sealed for Boris Johnson. Um, it probably is. If I had to bet money, I would certainly bet that he would win. But there could be a moment, and Michael Gove is very capable of delivering a moment like this, that is an absolute game changer. Remember David Cameron's 2005 conference speech, which transformed the contest. David Davis was way out in front at that point. I remember I was his chief of staff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> back, brings back painful memories. Um, so anything could happen. We don't know what's going to happen in the course of the next four or five weeks. But, I mean, as we stand now, you would have to say that Boris Johnson is the overwhelming favourite. So, I mean, I'd like to dig deeper into the idea that the Tory base is more um, in line with modern Britain, as it were, than it's given credit for. The underlying point is there, there is definitely a feeling and a perception that you know, the Tory party, whether it's the MPs or their members, don't really understand uh, ethnically diverse, uh, you know, in terms of gender and sexuality. They're just not connecting with the realities of modern Britain as they are now, when you layer on top of that Brexit and the fact that overwhelmingly young people, people under the age of 35, voted to remain in the European Union, it's hard to see how any of the candidates at the moment are trying to tackle that problem, to try and tackle the perception, to try and tackle the lack of support well, for it, younger voters. It, it, isn't it interesting how um, this contest is, I saw, I think, Rachel Sylvester in The Times today has described it as pale and stale. At the beginning of this contest, there were, was it two or three female candidates? Now, they, they have gone. Um, there were two ethnic minority candidates. There is one that is left. He is Home Secretary. Um, so I think it's really unfair to characterise them in that way. Now, you can say that, well, they haven't got 50% parity of female MPs, but I think if you look at the figures, they've certainly got uh, far more out gay MPs than any other party and totally out of proportion to the rest of the population. Um, now, that what does that mean? Not, not a lot in many ways. You've got to show that you are doing things um, on behalf of all sorts of different minorities. But they were the party that brought in equal marriage. Now, OK, you can then come back to me and say, yes, but the majority of Conservative MPs didn't vote for it, even mm. though it went, it went in under a Conservative government. I would defy you now, now, and now it's been in for, what, five years, I would defy you to find a single Conservative MP who would now vote to abolish it um, because the, earth, the heavens haven't fallen in. Um, people haven't been persuaded to go down the gay path or, or whatever, which I, mean, I don't know whether that was a fear or not. Um, I don't know any Conservative MP that would now seek to reverse that legislation. Mm. Um, but I, I, I think it's a, it's a bit more than even the legislation and uh, who are MPs, right? There's something about, you know, the front runner, uh, the guy who is likely to be our next prime minister is on record as, you know, describing black people with watermelon smiles of, uh, you know, gay people wearing bum boys wearing tank tops you know well it's difficult to see how electing someone who has said things like that who have described okay. muslim women right. as, as letterboxes i am i am on record in the past as not exactly being boris johnson's greatest cheerleader you've just quoted one word from an article from 1998 21 years ago mm. 
If I tell you that he voted to repeal Section 28 against the tide of his party in 2003, Jeremy Corbyn abstained on that vote. If I tell you that he launched the campaign for equal marriage when the majority of the country and Tory MPs opposed the idea, as Mayor of London, he not only supported Pride but went to it wearing a pink Stetson and all. Yet he comes under attack from the likes of Chris Patton, who was on Politics Live this morning laying into him for this, Somebody who voted to introduce Section 28, I bet he's never been on a gay pride event, he um, he didn't bother to defend equal marriage legislation in the House of Lords. I think you have to look at somebody's entire track record rather than pick one particular unfortunate word from an article 21 years ago. So I think his record on this particular issue is not that bad. Now, you you talk about the some of the racial things that he said, and I would totally agree with you. He shouldn't have said them. Um, I, well, The letterbox thing, I called into account on that on my, on my programme. Um, does that mean that, that we think he's Islamophobic because he said that? Well, you look at what Emily Thornbury has said on that subject in the past. You look at what Jack Straw has said on that subject in the past. Are we, do we seriously think that they are Islamophobic because they? she said she wouldn't want somebody wearing a burqa looking after her children? Now, Boris Johnson had said that. We all know that the earth, the, the heavens would have opened on him, but they didn't for Emily Thornbury because she's seen as on the left, so she must be a good person. Yeah. And actually, I think she is a good person. But And I guess the only thing I would say... Um finally on this is one to the extent that he has behaved in a way which appears more liberal i think that is perhaps indicative of the fact that you know and i'm just giving my personal view what are boris johnson's core beliefs <laughs> does, well, he, does he have any core beliefs would be one thing but i guess the 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 other thing though which goes back to the root of my question was more around you know if the tory party can see and it surely must be able to see that it's got a problem with younger voters then how does electing a man who has said many things that younger voters would yeah. find abhorrent and is then pushing a approach to brexit that would appall most younger voters in terms of its hardness how, how is the tory party then showing that it actually cares about appealing to so bringing it slightly kind of back to Brexit slash the fact that this is obviously all going on, the leadership campaign at the same time. And it is, it is still about Boris, but I think it's relatable to what we've just been talking about, about the transparency of his opinions, but also like how do people judge him in what he said, you know, a month ago or 10 years ago. Now, you've previously said that the winning candidate has to be tested to destruction. Yeah. So in the leadership race, not like prior years, but in the leadership race specifically, do you think the front runner has allowed himself to do that? Not yet, no. And what do you think he should do to make up for that in the very, very short I'm time? I'm not even sure. It, look, really. I think if you're running a political race, whether it's for a council or whether it's leader of a party, you've got to know who your electorate is. And with the greatest respect to everybody, the electorate here initially is Conservative MPs. So his strategy has been to woo, persuade, cajole Conservative MPs into supporting him through a series of one-to-one -one meetings. Sure. Now, it's very frustrating for me as a broadcaster. I want him in my <laughs> studio the whole time so I can cross-examine him. Now, all the others, of course, are playing catch-up, so they've been willing to do that so they can generate headlines and interest. He doesn't need to do that. So I think we all have to put ourselves in the position of Boris Johnson's spin doctor. And if you put yourself in that position, he would have been mad to do all of these things outside the House of Commons. Now, it'll be interesting to see how this debate goes tonight, because he's obviously going to be the target for all of them. Yeah. 
Um, and I mean, I personally think it might have been a bit better had he done the Channel 4 debate, had he appeared at the journalist hustings and all the rest of it. But I, I can understand the strategy, which is why I haven't been sending texts to his team every day demanding that he appears, because I have to accept that if I was them, I would be advising him to do exactly the same thing. Okay, so you think <laughs> but he should I be th- tested to no, destruction? But, but no, 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 but I think he will be. Once the parliamentary rounds are over and he's in the final two, he can't hide away then because the Tories are going to have 16 different sets of hustings yeah. uh, and in front of, well, thousands of party members. I mean, I gather, and I don't think I'm telling tales out of court, but I, I gather that some of these events are already way oversubscribed and yeah. they've got to find bigger venues. So there's a real interest in the Tory party in this. And I think it would be an absolute the terrible thing if the second place candidate dropped out and there was a coronation mm. Mm. because you never know what's going to happen in the, in these four or five weeks um and it may be nothing to do with anything that's said at any of the hustings but they will have to do andrew neil interviews um i think boris johnson will come and do an interview with me during that period they they certainly i mean they haven't said that they're not going to they think he'll do an interview with us you might as well ask him you might as well ask him he won't it's your first it's your first did that sound really resentful it's your first podcast now with the best will in the world you're not going to have despite the fact that I am your star guest on this podcast <laughs> you're not going to get like tens or tw- hundreds of thousands of people listening initially no, are you so well do we know you can only have hope but you see if, if Brexit cast I hate to mention that word but if Brexit cast asked him to come on I think it's something he probably ought to do mm. Because, oh look, Boris is a character and people like, even if you don't agree with his politics, he's, an, he's entertaining. Just remember, the reason he became famous, famous initially was because he chaired Have I Got News For You. That sure. was what catapulted him in, really into the public eye. Yeah. And he's good at those things. But of course, if you are his media team, you're just thinking, oh Christ, what's he going to say next? Hmm. What do you, what's, what's your take on the links with Steve Bannon and Trump and... That what, with, from Boris Johnson? Mm. Because that, I think that's probably another part of the kind of fear, right, is that you know, he's basically, you, he may cut his hair and he might say he's Boris Johnson rather than Boris and, you know, mm. have a diet and, and try to look more professional. But there is something possibly more sinister, worrying about the company he keeps. I, I was really surprised when I saw that he had... I don't think he's ever met Steve Bannon, has he? I think he's talked to him. Yeah, but they've um, kind of all been put in the same... Yeah. You see, and also, in the 21st century, like there are many people I've not met that I've spoken to loads. Like, mm. I think, I don't know, personally, I think, you know, there are loads of people that I speak to every day that I think I've Well, apparently I spoke life. at a conference with Steve Bannon back in 2013, but I had no idea until <laughs> right. someone reminded me and said, mm, oh... Nice. <laughs> and I, I mean, it was, well, anyway, I never didn't even know who he was. Uh, don't, think, don't think I met him, but... It's the sort of thing where if somebody has been chief of staff to the president of the United States or whatever his job title was, um, I'm not sure you can immediately say that no one should talk to them. Because if you are, if you see yourself as a future prime minister and you want to get into the mind of the president of the United States, I mean, if that was the objective of the, the conversation, I mean, that's a quite, quite a reasonable thing to do. If it was a conversation about, well, how can we get all the right-wing parties around Europe sort of that that's something rather different and we'll never know the answer to that 
Um, I don't see Boris Johnson as a hard right winger. Never have done. I've always seen him as somebody who is a, of the sort of one nation tradition. And you said at the beginning, well, how do we know what he believes? Um, well, I think we will find out what he believes. But um, Jonathan Liss, I don't know if you mm. know him, Deputy Director of British Future, he had a really interesting thread on Twitter on Friday where he mentioned the fact that he'd been told by various EU ambassadors that at a private meeting with Boris Johnson, when he was Foreign Secretary, he told them all that he was completely in favour of freedom of movement, privately. Mm -hmm. And that didn't surprise me at all, because I think Boris has always been very liberal on immigration. And you look at his record as Mayor of London, where he wanted to have an amnesty for illegal immigrants um, during that period. So there are all sorts of different areas where you can point to the fact that actually Boris Johnson is a force for liberalism, which will make a lot of your listeners laugh when I say that. But (laughs) it's it's true. Or or he says what the, the audience he's in front of wants to hear so if you're with name a politician that's never done that i know but it's there's doing it and then there's (laughs) and there's doing it (laughs) and also i think actually that takes it back to what i said earlier if he's saying that in private to you know different groups of people or as i think we can agree a lot of politicians do saying one thing to one group of people and one thing to another group of people how does that fit with the idea that i think all three of us agree on that any potential leader should be tested to destruction well, it fits with that completely because there is, there is now, I think they're going to announce the result on Ju- July the 22nd. So there's, there will be four weeks, five weeks, when all sorts of different people can ask him about all of these things. When the members can However, ask him about these things, not all sorts of different people. Well, and journalists, because he will do interviews. Okay. I, mean, th- th- I cannot conceive that he can go through the next four or five weeks without doing any interviews. I mean, that, that would be... I think, quite outrageous in a way that I don't think it has been for the last week or two, even though I I think, look, in in five weeks' time, is anybody going to really remember that he didn't do an interview during the parliamentary stages of a leadership contest? Of course they're not. So it's sort of short, short-term pain for long-term gain. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Um, so in terms of talking about no deal... Mm. the idea of a no-deal Brexit, would you say that a no-deal would be democratic, given that it wasn't on the ballot paper in 2016 and kind of like really championed, actually, by the people who led the campaign, the successful campaign? Well, you say that, um, and you're right, that it didn't say no-deal on the ballot paper, but it did say leave or remain. It didn't say leave with a deal. It just said leave. Um, and I don't, but you would be right to say that I don't think it was a major part of the campaign. Well, and it was actually a failure of the Remain campaign, I think, not to make it a major part of the campaign. I don't remember Nick Clegg or anybody saying, well, of course, we're going to have to choose between leaving without a deal or with a deal. I mean, there are so many failures of that campaign. Well, <laughs> one in the but you, you see, I can point to all sorts of different politicians on the Remain side, like Cameron Osborne, Clegg, all saying we would be leaving the single market, we would be leaving the customs union. You will then come back to me in the usual way and say, ah, yes, but Owen Patterson and Daniel Hannan said that leaving the single market would be ridiculous. That was before the campaign, it has to be said. So I'm not sure we get very far with those kind of arguments. And I don't think that um, going back three years to that campaign helps us in any way at all now. What we've got to contend with is is the situation that we're in, which I certainly didn't vote for. Um, I cannot believe that three years on, we are no nearer to leaving the EU than we were on June the 24th, 2016. Mm. And it is a lamentable failure of our government and political system that it's come to this. And do you, I can't defend it. Do you think it would be democratic to leave? Because that was one of the 
pillars of, you know, both sides of the argument, all people, was about democracy. Well, I think, yes, I do, because when MPs triggered Article 50, they did it in the full knowledge that if we didn't come to a deal within two years, we would be leaving with no deals. And that was a huge majority of MPs voted to trigger Article 50. Now, you can say, oh, well, the people should have had a say or should have a say as much as you like. But we we do still live in a parliamentary democracy. And even, I mean, in an overwhelmingly remain parliament, the majority for triggering Article 50 was massive. I mean, it's hundreds. I can't remember the exact figures. So you can say to MPs, well, they didn't know what they were voting for, so maybe they should have another have another go. Um, but I think it's entirely democratic. But to pick, So I was in Cornwall for the referendum, which is where my parents live, and obviously the vast majority of my family and friends voted to leave. They're very, and still have, very legitimate like, grievances with their lives, and you were told that voting leave would be a step on the path, you could say, to kind of alleviating those. And I think what you said just then about telling people they don't know what they voted for, I've never said that because they know exactly what they were voting mm. for. But well, people voted no for all deal, sorts of different things, didn't they? Well, yeah, but a no-deal Brexit wouldn't satisfy any of the people I know, family, friends or well, local businesses. I don't think there is any form of Brexit that would satisfy everybody who voted leave, whether it's no deal, with a deal, single market, whatever. You'll never please all of the people all of the time. And that is just a truism in all sorts of different politics, not just on Brexit. And all that can be done now is for the government to try and negotiate their way through this in the best way possible. Because I know I am not going to get the kind of Brexit that I wanted, which was why I was willing, even though when Theresa May's deal was first announced, I mean, I I went on my radio show and absolutely slammed her and said it was an absolute (laughs) disgrace. It was Brexit in name only. And there's no way that I would ever support it. But the nearer we got to March the 29th, I was realistic enough to know that if that didn't go through, it could jeopardise the whole of Brexit because the People's Vote campaign would get wind in its sails, which it has. And if there is another referendum, though I still actually believe that Leave would win that referendum, if there is another referendum and Remain wins, well, that's that's game over. Mm. There won't be best of three, even though you could argue that there ought to be in a way. Um, so I, I don't know where this is going to head now. Uh, I genuinely don't. So, uh, Prime Minister Boris uh, Boris Johnson goes to uh, the EU, tries to get rid of the backstop or you know, put some alternative arrangements in. They say, we're not having it. It's either this or nothing. At that point, where do you stand? Do you back his, okay, well, people voted to leave in 2016, so no deal, off we go? It doesn't... I mean, I'm going to slightly avoid the question here. It doesn't really matter where I stand, but you have to look at what's likely to happen. Um, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely... All right, well, I'm, I'm interested I am, in... I, in, do not, in your... I do not want to leave the EU without a deal. I, th- I think it is preposterous in a way to suggest that that should even be a possibility. Mm-hmm. However, I look at the way the EU has treated this country over the past three years. I look at Stop their it. obstinacy. Stop it. I look at their that's obstinacy. Not, that's... that. Okay, sorry, I interrupted God, you. Can you handle that badly, Jason? <laughs> he's, he's got animated up after all this time. I'm just, I'm just, I've, I've triggered him. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> he's another surprise. The thing is, I've genuinely... I, I think the European Union have done exactly what you would expect them to do. They've oh, so do I. United. No, but so do I. Also, they haven't treated us badly. They basically said you can't have the benefits no. of membership what? without being a member. People are and just I, annoyed because they've negotiated better as a bloc. Yeah. Well, us, well they I'm have. Honest. You're yeah, absolutely no, And I think right. people are annoyed about and that. And I think it went wrong almost from day one 
in the way that we decided, the British government decided to negotiate. And it was all it was Theresa May who made that decision against the advice of David Davis and various others. And I'm afraid it was all downhill from there. But as I say, we are where we are, and nothing nothing can change what's happened over the last three years. Mm-hmm. Now, I if you say to me, okay, you've got two choices. My choice, if I thought that there was a realistic possibility of a new prime minister negotiating something different with the EU, would be to extend Article 50 by a year Mm -hmm. from October. I think that's the adult thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think the EU would do that now. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think the Conservative Party would stand for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there are two choices now. However, it gets even more complicated because if Boris Johnson doesn't manage to negotiate something by the 31st of October, and I think we probably all agree it's highly unlikely that he would be able to, bearing in mind the new commission isn't sworn in until the 1st of November, and all just is a (laughs) write-off. I mean, who's he going to negotiate with and for how long? Exactly. Um, So let's assume that it gets to the uh, end of October and there is no prospect of a deal. This is where Gove, I think, has the right idea and, and Jeremy Hunt to an extent. Well, if you're near a deal, fine, extend it for a few days, few weeks, whatever. I mean, who's going to worry about that length of time? But if there is no prospect of that, um, I think that from a from a party point of view, he probably has to try and leave with no deal. I think from a uh, from the country's point of view, you could argue from a democratic point of view that's what he ought to do. But he won't. I don't think he'll be allowed. What do to. you want him to do? I I find it really difficult to put myself in the position of being there, say, on October the 15th, um, when there it is clear that there is no prospect of be, doing a deal by the 31st. What do you do then? Um, I'm pretty sure I would probably argue to extend, despite all the difficulties that that would um, incur. Um, but I think what might happen then is that if it looks as if we are going to leave with no deal, I don't actually think that Parliament is able to stop that. All this talk about prorogation is, is utterly ridiculous. I think Corbyn then puts down a vote of confidence and he wins it mm-hmm. because mm. Dominic Grieve, and there are plenty of other Dominic Greaves on the Tory benches, yeah, definitely. who are, shall we say, not the youngest of MPs, but are quite happy to sacrifice themselves to stop us leaving because they would lose the party whip, which means that they wouldn't be able to stand in a future general election. I think that Corbyn could easily win that. Mm. Um, in which case there's a general election. And then the fun really starts because Nigel Farage would have huge amount of wind in his sails. I told you so, so Boris has let us down, blah, blah, blah. Um, Then you have the Liberal Democrats who will have even further wind in their sails. So what you're probably going to head for then is an election where each of the four parties gets 25% of the vote. Now, how anyone can predict how that would shake out in parliamentary terms, I don't know. Mm. Um, so it could be that Boris Johnson is it becomes the Lady Jane Grey of British Prime Ministers in, in office <laughs> for literally a matter of days. Goodness. Um, so we've got <laughs> good grief. Given given what you've just said, everything about yeah. No Deal and your thoughts about that, if we got to October thirty first, if you had to choose, would you choose? Leaving with no deal on October 31st or a people's vote? God bless you, Amanda, because that was one of the questions I was going to ask. Leaving. 
leaving because with I no don't deal. see what a, another referendum solves. I mean, this this idea that Tom Watson keeps promulgating that oh, well, the only way to break the logjam is through another referendum. How does that work exactly? Because you're going to have one of two or three results. You're going to have an identical vote to last time. You're going to have a, a similar vote, but the other way round to last time. Or you might have a a bigger leave majority. How does that solve anything? Because you're still you still got to do the deal with the EU. You still got to negotiate a free trade agreement with the EU. I don't see what it solves. Well, I think it adds a level of democratic legitimacy to whatever. No, happens. we had that in 2016. Yeah, but as we were saying, you can't the, have the, another the, referendum before you've implemented the result of the first. And I guess where we would come in, and where I think a lot of young people would say the same, is that. The, re- the referendum in 2016 isn't implementable. All the promises well, that were then made... it should never have been held, should it? Well, on that, on that, we'll agree. But I, I think it's difficult... I think it, it's difficult know, to make it, the, if, the case. If the that, opinion polls were showing a clear majority for Remain, i.e. something like 65-35 or 70-30, I would, I would be on your side. I'd say, OK, things have changed. We've got a year of opinion polls showing that the country has changed its mind. Well, we are, and, we are seeing shifts. Well, no, we're, 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 shifts we're not, towards, though. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, you, you can quote a few polls that show sort of 52, 53 um, that way, but that was exactly the same the week before the referendum in 2016 because there are a lot of shy Brexiteer voters who don't tell opinion pollsters that they want to leave. So you've got to have, I think, a clear margin. So I'm, I'm not dogmatic on this. If somebody was able to persuade me that it, it actually would provide a pathway, fine, I'll go along with it. But nobody's done that yet. I don't see public opinion changing. Um, so I'm quite happy to countenance a general election um, in, in those circumstances. But I just don't see how another referendum solves Even anything. Even though you've just said a general election might end up with the main parties getting 25%. Well, it might, each. but you can't control that. Yeah. I mean, that and a general election is about more... Well, of course it is. And I mean, the last election was supposed to be about Brexit to give Theresa May a bigger mandate. And of course, look what happened. Yeah. Okay. I think we're actually going to be told to to stop talking. (laughs) Thank you very much for being our first guest. Yes, thanks. And good luck at Edinburgh Fringe as well. Well, thank thank you for mentioning that because I am going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe from the 31st of July to the 11th of August. 24 shows. I got a lot of criticism because in the first 12 shows, there wasn't a single Brexit guest. There are a couple in the second. So I've got people like Nicola Sturgeon, Len McCluskey, um, Kirsty Walk. I wish I had the list in front of yeah. me now because I can <laughs> never we, remember. We probably Dr. Dr. Da- Dr. Dr. David Starkey. Dear listener, this was not planned. <laughs> Sadiq Khan, John McDonnell. So well, you've just listed something lots of for everybody. discussions there. So. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers. Thank you very much. So now we introduce our first segment where we look over the last week at the time of recording with young eyes and olds and cynical hearts. It's the news, but not as you know it, Jim. As you know it, Jim. I don't like... I'm not ignoring that bit. (laughs) You've got to say it again, then. (laughs) Jason, what's caught your eye over the last week? Uh, Do you know what? The thing that's caught my eye is uh, Tom Watson did uh, quite a nice video a couple of days ago. Did you see it? Yeah. Where he basically made all of the arguments that you would hope a leader of the opposition would make in terms of uh, (laughs) membership of the European Union being one of uh, solidarity and internationalism and those are Labour values and so we should be unequivocal in backing that. And it just made me think, after terrible uh, European election results, yes, one in Peterborough, but not an inspiring victory, uh, behind the Brexit party, in the polls and maybe even the Lib Dems. Pitiful local election results, Pitiful don't forget local them. local election results. You would hope 
that the leader of the opposition (laughs) (laughs) and his shadow cabinet would be out there making the case. You can see Boris Johnson on the horizon, about to become our prime minister. They would be, you know, taking the battle to the Tories to say, absolutely not. We're not going to stand for it. You know, our future is better within the European Union. And instead, there's nothing. You sound unbelievably frustrated. It is so frustrating. And we've got um, criticised since, you know, we launched last year for being too hard on Jeremy, too hard on Labour. But you look at what's going on at the moment and you look at the lack of visible leadership from uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And the fact also, I'm just going to end with this little rant. Um, The fact that his whole brand is based on being a man of principle and listening to members. And yet, it's clear what members think. And it's clear that in principle, Brexit is going to be a disaster and goes against Labour values. And yet, he's nowhere to be seen. So that is that is my takeaway. Tom Watson further highlighting the dearth of leadership in the Labour Party. Well, if you're interested in mine, I can't promise it's anything more positive. (laughs) (laughs) I am interested in yours, man. Please do share. However, it's about the Conservative Party, obviously the one that everybody's focusing on at the moment as we have to sit through the leadership contest, despite what many of us might think of the individual candidates. The one thing I vaguely noticed, and it's kind of often commented on, but generally underanalyzed, is the weird hyper-masculinity that appears to be pervading the leadership contest mm. over the last couple of weeks. What do you mean by that? Uh, some, I mean, in particular, now that there are only men left in the running, the contest appears to be less of an exercise in who will be best prime minister and or conservative leader, and more a competition as to who has the longest list of Brexiter credentials <laughs> as they all try and out-Brexit yeah. the Brexit party, which feels like it's something that should be doomed from the start. But I mean, honestly, it kind of reached a bit of a crescendo on Sunday night at the Channel 4 Hustings debate, mm. where all of the candidates, except of course, of course, Alexander Boris Defeffel Johnson, and yes, I am going to use his full name, at times they all just look like a bunch of male sixth form students arguing about who's got the hardest dad. And this is a topic that's close to mine and also FFS's heart, as as many people will know, is we got into this to change the nature of the debate around Brexit and in particular, the pale male staleness and uninspiring nature of it all. And Mayor Ligo very much got us into this mess and it may yet deepen these divides further. So, you know, speaking of Mayor Ligo's, over to you, Jason. (laughs) I love you, really. I mean, it's harsh, (laughs) but also fair. (laughs) Cool. So, uh, what's coming up next? What are the exciting things that are on the horizon, Amanda? So, the very next event uh, for the People's Vote campaign, of which FFS is very pivotal, I'm quite happy to say, is in Leeds, uh, New Dock Hall at midday. And there's a host of young speakers, which is very exciting, from all across the northern region, because despite what people like to say is a bit of a hot take, it is not one homogeneous mass where everyone mm. thinks, sounds, talks and looks the same. So personally, really excited about that. Hillary Benn, Labour MP, is also speaking and I think he's a fantastic speaker. So I, I like Hillary Benn. You like Hillary Benn? Yeah. 
He's a fan. Someone in the office calls him Huggy Ben, and I find that quite funny myself. Uh, yeah, I feel like he'd be a man who'd be good to hug. I'm not sure if they want me to say that on the podcast, but we are where we are. So after the Leeds event, um, there is obviously a series of different events across the summer, rallies, um, leading all the way up to both party conferences. So we'll kind of keep dipping in and out and keeping people up to date with them as the podcast goes. Yeah, and we are recording this before June the 23rd. So we've also got three years since the referendum anniversary. Do you want a woohoo? You don't. You don't. <laughs> I'm not going to cheer that. <laughs> okay. Are you going to? Are you going to? Are you going to do something? Are you going to? Are you going to mark it? I think what a lot of people will spend the entire day doing is looking back at the last three years. I'm not going to lie. I'd rather, right. as a country, we looked forward and we yeah. were like, okay, do we genuinely, genuinely, in our heart of hearts, think that by October 31st? The last three years will be put behind us and resolved. No, of course it won't. We'll be lucky if this is done in another year or even another three years. And honestly, I genuinely find that a bit depressing, as do, I think, an overwhelming majority of young people and the general population, because there are so many other issues and conversations that people want to be having and can't. Yeah. I'm worried we're going to be really depressing on this podcast. We're going to need to not do that, probably. I just called Hillary Ben Huggy Ben. Oh, that's true. (laughs) That's lovely, yeah. (laughs) Right, so that's it. That's our very first podcast done. Thank you very much for listening. Please keep listening. Um, Please. Thanks to (laughs) Ian Tail for being a a great guest as well. And we'll be around a similar time next week. 